Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Kara tonight. And our topic is making the Word central. We're planning to cover the entire scripture tonight, so I invite you to go on that journey. <laughs> and we'll be talking about how the Word becomes central. There are various different stories that struck me in which uh, at first, in a given story, the word, the, there'll be an image of the Word, but it's way off at the side. And then over time, it's very gradual, but it moves into the center. But later in the story, it manages to not be central again, and then you move it back in, and it pops out again, unlike anything we experience in our spiritual lives. So uh, if you're willing to join me on that journey, let's, let's take that together, shall we, friends? And let's open with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. We thank you for your presence among us. Please open the pages of your word, Lord, and show us yourself what it is that you're doing with us. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for being here, sending out love to those of you who are online and on the phone and the audio. Great pleasure to be with you on this beautiful fall evening on the East Coast of the U.S. And... Um, Making the Word central. We are going to dip in. We're not going to cover the entirety of Scripture and painting with a broad brush tonight. But um, I want to look in Genesis to begin with. That's something we read a couple of weeks ago. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. The first image that struck me here was the image of the tree of life. In 2 verse 9. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, so the tree of life is in the midst of the garden. What's encouraging about this to me is uh, that's, that's an image of the Lord, an image of the word. And it starts out in the middle. I like that. And if you're familiar with Swedenborg's idea of correspondences over the course of our life, this is the way that God is very close to us in earliest childhood. I think we don't have any defenses to prevent that from occurring. So it's a nice thought that the Lord starts out in the middle. It's just only later that it, that it gets uh, messed up. Let's look at Genesis 3, verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And from context, you find out that's no longer the tree of life. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And all sorts of bad things happen when they eat it. As you know, they get kicked out of the garden and so on. So already from chapter 2 to chapter 3, we, we, our center shifted. It, it, it shifted from being the tree of life to being the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, which Swedenborg explains as having to do with our appearance that we live from ourselves and embracing that and saying, no, that's the truth. Uh, it's not something that flows in from God. Um, so we've already, we're three chapters in and we've got a center problem. You know, the, the wrong thing is now in the center. And lo and behold, when the wrong thing is in the center, then other things start to go badly. Adam and Eve, as I say, are thrown out of the, out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, later on, look at Genesis 12. So it's nice that it started out well. 
<laughs> it, it goes badly pretty quickly. Uh, what is happening in Genesis 12, verse 10? Now there was a famine in the land. Oh, there's a famine. In, so used to be Garden of Eden. Everything was great. Now there's famine in chapter 12. It's already a famine. And so Abram goes down to Egypt to sojourn there. Uh, look at Genesis 26, verse 1. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Okay, by Genesis 26, we're having our second famine. Um, so why do I mention that? It's, at one point, the tree of life was in the center, and then everything was about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now it seems like famine is in the center. It's actually driving people out of the land already, twice already. Famine has driven people out. We're only in Genesis 26. Uh, look at 41, chapter 41 in Genesis. I want all the way at the end. It's a long chapter. Uh, yeah, look at verse 54. Just, we're just skimming through here. But. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. That's right. And so if you remember the story, the um, sons of Israel and their families were driven down to Egypt by this famine. So there's a problem in the center and they have to go somewhere else. You know, the, the center's kind of dried up. There's a famine there and you have to get out of there. And what I'm arguing tonight, my perspective tonight, as you can already tell, is that this is about times when the word, there are sometimes where the word is central to our lives and where the Lord, the, the Lord is the word, the word is in mostly the Lord, uh, at its inmost level it contains the Lord. Uh, when that's in the center, we're doing fine. It's the Garden of Eden. But when that shifts even slightly off center, we start to get in trouble. And in time, we're, we're into famine and, and we're actually driven out of the land. So it's, it's kind of off center. Do you see what I mean? This, this is what I'm arguing. So look in Genesis 47, uh, verse 4. This is what Joseph and his father and brothers come to say to Pharaoh in 47, verse 4 in Genesis. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Yes, so here they come. They're all driven down to Egypt by the famine. Uh, let's turn to Exodus chapter 1. And uh, I'd like to look at verses 13 and 14 there. This is what happens to the children of Israel when they're down there in Egypt for a, for a while. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor, and they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. Yes. So the children of Israel get enslaved down there in Egypt and living this arduous kind of life. Now, you probably are familiar with the story, good friends, of how the children of Israel get out of that situation. There's some individual who comes in named Moses, and he saves the day. He leads the people out, and he represents the word. In fact, it's quite obvious 
that he does. You remember in the Transfiguration in the New Testament, if you're familiar with that story, that uh, the Peter, James, and John see Jesus with Moses and Elijah, who represent the law and the prophets. They, they mean parts of the word, as Jesus does himself. And so uh, Moses is the word coming, you know, like we're, we're way off track, we're enslaved. We need the word to come back in here. But how does this go? Look in Exodus um, chapter 2. Look at the beginning there of that chapter. And a man of the house of Levi went and took as wife a daughter of Levi. So the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Okay, at this point, Moses exists in the world. He's only between zero and three months old. And he's hidden in his parents' house. I was telling our dear reader today that I, I always have this foolish image that he was sleeping in a, in a drawer, in a you know, chest of drawers. Uh, they didn't have that kind of furniture back then, I don't think. But he's hidden away. You, you can't see him because they were killing all the male children at that time. And um, so she hides him. And look at verse 3 there. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes for him daubed it with asphalt and pitch, put the child in it, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. So do you get what I'm driving at tonight? That here comes the word. The word is coming back. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that Moses is going to become very, very central, lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt as a powerful leader and stay with them all the way to the brink of the Holy Land and everything, 40 years of wandering. But right now... He's in Egypt, and he's first of all hidden, and then he's in this ark uh, by the um, banks of the river. And, uh, and it struck me recently, as some of you may know if you've listened to these Bible studies, that that ark, isn't it amazing that it's an ark, you know? And then later you get the ark of the covenant that contains the Ten Commandments. You know, it's the same kind of imagery. Here's, here's this ark, and where is the ark? Is it at the center of Israelite life? No. It's off in the bulrushes, you know, somewhere where nobody knows where it is. So the word is coming, but it's not central yet. It's, it's off in the Wally Oats kind of thing. And uh, then look at uh, chapter 3. You may know that Moses, um, you know, committed this little indiscretion of killing somebody. And so he uh, had to flee. It was found out and he ran off. And uh, what does he do in 3, verse 1? Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Yes. Now, I, um, okay, if you can picture Moses, he was raised as a child of the daughter of Pharaoh. So he's raised as an Egyptian prince with all the, the wealth and the trappings that go with that. And now, just not much later, he's, he's off again. It, what, what did it say? What part of the desert? The, the wilderness? I forget what verse it is. The back, in, in, the, in the Old King James, the glorious language of the Old King James, it's the backside of the desert. You know, it's just w- way off. Or, you know, it's not even the front of the desert. <laughs> it's the back of the desert, you know. Uh, he is way off, uh, not central yet, not central. 
he's tending to the flocks. Must have felt a little weird to him, I think, to have gone from being in the Egyptian court to just tending sheep on, on the backside of a mountain. But what mountain was it? It's the Horeb. mountain of God. It's Horeb, which people identify. He's told later, if you look in verse 12 there, that God says to him, I'll be with you. And when you've brought your people out of Egypt, you'll serve God on this mountain. So people identify it with Sinai. Horeb is the same as Sinai. And uh, so things are starting to move. Uh, look at Exodus 13. Another interesting element comes in here. The children of Israel are still in slavery. Moses is going in and saying to Pharaoh, let my people go, but they're still enslaved. So the word is kind of coming. And it's starting to apply pressure, but uh, and it's become more central and more powerful than it was. But you're still down in Egypt. And look at 13, starting in the 17th verse there. Then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had led, let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Yes, I love this. So, um, so uh, the Lord had engineered a series of miracles uh, to try to turn Pharaoh around and to convince him to let the people go. And finally, when the firstborn uh, are killed, then he says, go, just go. And they're going, but God decides to not to lead them through the way, of the, which would be pretty direct. You can go pretty directly through the land of the Philistines into the Holy Land where they want to go. But he decides not to because if they, they're not ready, if they see warfare, they're just going to turn back. It, it's, it's not going to work. Uh, look at verse 18. So God led the people around by way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So now they're starting to follow something, right? Moses has, Moses has taken power. There was one point where he was just hidden away and not known about. But now he's right there. And people through these miracles have started to respect his leadership. And he's taking them. Go on. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Mm. So they took their journey from Succoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And listen to this. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Now, to me, this is an amazing uh, image. And... Uh... Isn't it sort of an increased presence of God? So you have Moses and he's leading them, but now there's a supplemental thing, which is this pillar of, of fire and cloud. And this is all before the Ten Commandments. It's before the tabernacle. The pillar of fire and cloud preceded those things. So something is coming in and leading them. Take it, so, so the word is becoming more and more central. That's what I'm, I'm arguing. Uh, okay, let's go to chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, they get the, uh, they've gone to the mountain as promised, 
and they get, we're whipping through, <laughs> and they get the Ten Commandments. And in verse 18 there, Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Ah, so the Ten Commandments are coming into play. The mountain is smoking and covered with fire. Is it central to the people? Well, they stand as far away as they can. It's, you know, it's not exactly central. And they're, and they're afraid of it. Look at verse 19. Then they said to Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Yes, <laughs> that's the attitude at that point. It's like, okay, we, we trust you. We're still not okay with God and we're going to stand pretty far away. But things are developing, aren't they? You've got the Ten Commandments coming down now. And along with the Ten Commandments was the design for the tabernacle. And look in Exodus chapter 33. So while we're whizzing through this story, but, but while Moses was up on the mountain, he was given the model of this tabernacle, which was a sacred tent that would contain the Ten Commandments in its holiest place and other sacred furniture. It was all collapsible. You could travel with it and an outer courtyard. And he was given these very specific, in fact, it says he was shown, he could see it in his spirit, the, the, what the tabernacle looked like. And so um, uh, look at 33 verse 7. What did Moses do with this tabernacle, with this sacred tent? Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. Yeah, so there's, I believe this is the tabernacle, and my edition has got a capital T and everything, that Moses, pitched, in the Old King James, it says Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it outside the camp. Um, they have the tabernacle and the Ten Commandments, but it's not central. It's outside the camp. Um, I, I, I think that's really amazing. Look at verse 8. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. <laughs> uh, what tickles me about this a little bit, it's a very powerful image. What tickles me about it is it's sort of like if you understand that the tabernacle means some connection with the Lord, they're all fine standing in the doorway of their tent and watching him. You know, do you want to come with me? No, you do it. I'll watch. <laughs> so they watch him go out and commune with God outside the camp. Uh, but we'll, I'll, I'll stand in my door. I, I'm not going over there. I, I, it still creeps me out a little bit. or so I'm, I'm not ready for that. And look at verse 9. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle and the Lord talked with Moses. Mm. So that's that divine connection. So the Lord is talking to Moses. Go on. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So they're worshipping. They're not just watching him from a distance, but they're still by their tent. They haven't gone outside the camp to where the tabernacle is. And look at verse 11. 
So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Yes, and this is powerful because the name Joshua in the Old Testament is the same as Jesus in the New Testament. And Joshua takes over the leadership uh, when, when they actually cross into the Holy Land. Um, so uh, eventually, as you know, the tabernacle became uh, absolutely central. I don't know if I have a passage on that. It seems to me that in Numbers, uh, turn to the right, go through Leviticus and get to Numbers. And, you know, we don't... Uh, yeah, if you look at 2, verse 2 there... Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. But what's different is that they're all around it now. It's not outside the camp. They're some to the east, some to the west, some to the north, some to the south. They're camped all around it. So it has become central. You see what I'm talking about? So, so the, the way that the word... The, the divine truth, the divine law of the Ten Commandments. How does that become? It just fascinates me. Moses, is, he's hidden. He's hidden in Egyptian or, or in a house in Egypt. Then he's in the bulrushes. Then he goes out to the back of the mountain. Uh, but in time, he becomes central, leads the people out. Then the pillar of cloud and fire uh, start leading the people in addition to Moses. And then they get the Ten Commandments. Then they create the tabernacle, but it's outside the camp. Then the tabernacle gets moved into the camp. So uh, it seems to me that these are different phases of the Word and the Lord becoming more and more central. There, And it takes a long time. It seems to take a long... You know, we're going through whole books and we're getting to the point, okay, the, now... It's really at the center and everybody, when it moves, everybody moves, everybody moves with it. When they cross into the Holy Land, that Ark of the Covenant goes and then they all go over and, and it comes back out and, and uh, they're, they're really following this thing now. Uh, so now uh, look at 1 Samuel. So turn to the right, go through Deuteronomy and... Uh, Okay, yeah, let's go to 1 Samuel. So Joshua, Judges, go to 1 Samuel through Ruth there to 1 Samuel chapter 7. And so um, they set up the tabernacle in the, they came into the Holy Land, they set up the tabernacle there. And uh, chapter 7, verse 1 there. Then the man of, sorry, then the men of Kirjath Jearim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jearim a long time. It was there twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What's going on here in this general story is that the ark was taken completely from them. So, like, we, it was getting good. We, we had the word in the middle. It, it was going well. Whoops. Oh, it was carried off by the Philistines. And there's a long process of bringing it back. And you can tell that the ark represented the Lord because it said they lamented 
after the Lord. Isn't that what it says there at the end of verse 2? Mm -hmm. mm. And what does Samuel say about how to get the ark back? Verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve Him only. There it is. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And what do they do? So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Yeah, and you notice in verse 6, they all say, we have sinned against the Lord. This is a kind of communal repentance process, isn't it? They're putting away their strange gods. They lost the ark because they, they went off track. And the ark got taken from them. And so the only way to get it back is to put away their strange gods, prepare their hearts, and serve the Lord alone. Uh, You've got to make the word central again. They realize it's not going well. We've got to make the word central, the word and the Lord central again in our lives. Um, can I ask you to turn to the right and go through First and Second Kings? We'll come back here in a bit and go to First Chronicles. And an interesting little detail in a parallel passage here, chapter 13, 1 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 3. They're talking about bringing the ark back. And let us bring the ark of our God back to us, for we have not inquired at it since the days of Saul. Oh, that could be part of why you lost it. You never used the thing since the time of Saul. You know, we didn't bother asking, you know, so the relationship with the Lord broke down and they like, so you got little clues in the text that they made the first, you know, it's not that the Lord sort of took the ark away from them and like they're not worthy or they're, you know, no, they, they went off the path and then the ark got lost. And so that's so interesting to me. <laughs> they just admit yeah, we, we actually haven't, you know, consulted the Lord for, you know, the last number of decades. So, <laughs> you know. um, so let's bring this back. We want to bring this back. Uh, now, can you go to the left, good friends? Back, 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 back. I want to go back to Joshua. If you get to Deuteronomy, you've gone too far. And I want to look at Joshua 15 here. That's just really interesting to me. So doesn't it seem that this is talking about, it's just an interesting perspective to me uh, of it's in the center and then whoop, oh, oh, we lost it. Oh, it was there for a while, but oops. And then, then we try to get it back. And what do you do to try to get it back? Joshua 15. Uh, oh, okay. Now here's another center. You may know. Most people do that at the center of the Holy Land was the city of Jerusalem. So even when the children of Israel had gone into the Holy Land, what was the situation in uh, Jerusalem? Look at 15 verse 63, the very last verse in that long, long chapter. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem 
to this day. Yeah, so at that time, there were people who were not the children of Israel living in Jerusalem. And even though they occupied the rest of the land, the center of it, which is Jerusalem, Mount Zion and all that, belongs to somebody else. It's a, it's a, great, it's a great picture. You know, it seems to fit with the same theme of like, okay, no, we're still, okay, we had the center, we lost it for a while, we got it back, now we want to move into Jerusalem, but oops, oops, oh, it's full of enemies, and we, and we can't get in there. Uh, look, turn to the right and go through Judges and 1 Samuel, get to 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 5. Uh, we're just skipping a lot of the story here, but, but look at verses 4 and 5 there. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. One of the great things that David did, so here's another person. Swedenborg says very clearly that David represents the Lord uh, especially the divine truth. And he writes the Psalms and all that. Again, another figure related to the word and someone who, who was instrumental in writing some of the word. And he becomes this young king. And when he starts out, he's only in Judah because there are still enemies in Jerusalem. And there's dramatic stories about how they have to conquer because Jerusalem was a stronghold. I mean, it was... It was very hard to get people out of there. Finally, what they did was they crawled up the water shaft and got up from the inside and were able to infiltrate it and take over. And then David was able to become king of Jerusalem. And then he was able to rule over all Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. He was able to unite them. Another image of like, okay, it's become central. Good, now David's in there. We've got Jerusalem. It's good. We're good. Okay. Uh, let's turn to the right. We're whipping through here, covering the entire Bible in one night. Let's go through 1 Kings, get to 2 Kings. I want to go to chapter 22. There might be a little more trouble in paradise here. Um, 22 verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Rotro, the book of the law got lost for a long time. Hello, you know, they lose the ark. Now they've <laughs> they lost they lost the book of the law. Did you have that sacred script? I was around here somewhere. I must have mislaid it. You know, they 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 didn't even seem to realize they didn't have it. They finally find it, and then Hilkiah says. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And he gave it to Shaphan and he, and he read it. And so they take it to the king and they read it to him. Verse 11 there. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Isaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. 
I'm so interested that they say that it was their fathers, their ancestors, who didn't listen to the words of the book. And yet, who does he say at the end the book is about? Us. Us. They really, no, this book is about us, right? Even, even though it's been here for a while, it's, it's still a book about us. And I'm very interested in that image of um, that you find the book of the law and then they also want to inquire of the Lord. It's not that that's enough by itself, but they want to inquire of the Lord concerning what's written in there. And they approach the Lord and try to find out, well, what should we do? We, you know, we, we lost the book. We haven't been obeying this and so on. And so they go and consult a Huldah the prophetess, which is a great story. Look at 23, the next chapter, um, verse 24, when, yeah. Moreover, Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might perform the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Well done, reader. You know, week after week, I drop dear reader into passages. Sighted. She never has any idea what we're about to read. <laughs> and she's able to turn it into whole sentences in real time. I just had to say that. The, um, th that's a complex sentence right there, but you nailed it. And, um, and isn't that great? What is he doing? What, what did we read before? You have to put away those strange gods you know, that's how we'll get it back. Well, here we are, same thing. Oh, the book says we shouldn't be doing this. So they start doing the practices that the book tells you to do. Get, get rid of all that stuff. And performing the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And let's read verse 25, because it's just so great. Now before him, there was no king like him. This is Josiah. Who turned to the Lord with all his heart, mm. with all his soul, and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. Now, there are sometimes rumors going around that you could approach the Lord without having to deal with the law or something. It's pretty clear to me in a passage like that, that the law was this avenue of his being able to connect with the Lord. He's turning to the Lord with all his heart and soul and might, according to all the law of Moses. And he was unique in the degree of his, his response. Um, Let's turn to the right and go through 1 Chronicles to 2 Chronicles, chapter 34, look verse 14, same story, this is a parallel passage, 14, yes, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 14. Now, when they brought out the money that was brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Yes, if you read back in the context a little bit, what First Chronicles, Second Chronicles tells you that you don't find out from the other account is that it was actually when they were paying the workers. There were people working on the temple, and it's when they paid them. And they paid them in a very fair way. They didn't even add things up. They just like, I trust you. And they handed over the cash. And, and it was in the actual act of, of transferring that money that they come upon the book of the law. So it just seemed important to me that there was something about doing, you know, they were doing the right thing. And then they find, oh, look, there's this book that tells you how to do the right thing. And so they were already doing something good. 
but that brought them into this great amount of truth and they were able to start following uh, this book. And um, all right, how are we doing? So, uh, yes, we lost the book of the law. We found it again. So let's turn back, if you will, good friends, good and patient friends. Go to 2 Kings. So turn to the left through 1 Chronicles and get back to 2 Kings. I want to look at chapter 17 there to try to see some more of what happened in that time period. Um, this was when the children of Israel were actually, the northern kingdom was actually carried away captive. So look at verses 5 and 6 there. Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. Now, uh, we're covering such a lot tonight, it's hard to describe the individual details, but you see, one image is just being in the land. If you're in the land, like when they were in the Garden of Eden, that was good. When they got kicked out, not so good. Uh, when they were in the Holy Land, good. Famine drives you to Egypt, not so good. Then they get back in, now they're driven out again, not so good. So the land is one image. The ark is another image, the pillar of cloud and fire, whether you're inquiring of the Lord. These are various different images about the Lord and the word being central in our lives. And this is the long since, you know, in other words, before this, the northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. They split into two pieces. So David had united everything. Whoops, it came apart and it fell into two kingdoms that had different places of worship, as we'll see later, I hope. And uh, now the northern kingdom just gets carried away into captivity in Assyria. Uh, look at chapter 24, that same book, verses 13 and 14. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he cut in pieces all the articles of gold which Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, as the Lord had said. That doesn't seem, does that seem good to you, like a good omen? If you cut all the sacred stuff, all the gold stuff up? Not, not good, probably not good. Go on. Also, he carried into captivity all Jerusalem, all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and, mm. and smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. Yeah, uh, that's, that's meaningful to me. I won't go into detail now, but it's sort of like that, that the, the smallest, humblest part of us is what gets to stay in there, but all the pride and all the other stuff, no, that, that goes off. So this is a second captivity. This is the captivity of the southern kingdom to Babylon. The north went off to Assyria. That has to do with false reasonings. The south went off to Babylon, which has to do with controlling others through by means of religion. And uh, so not central, you, you know, you're not even in the land of Canaan, nowhere near the temple, carried off, it's bad. So it's a little unsettling, isn't it, that the tree of life used to be in the center, then you got off, 
then you sort of, it took a long while to sort of get something to be central. Whoops, we fell off the horse, stopped inquiring of the Lord, lost the ark. Oh, then we tried to get it back. And, uh, and then, whoops, no, no, we fell off the horse again. And now, um, you know, we're, we're, we're scattered. Uh, so, not so good. Let's turn to the New Testament, see if there's any solace there. Uh, look at Matthew, flip, 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 flip. A lot of the prophets, as you know, good friends, is prophesying about the return to the land, you know, that we'll get back and things are going to work out. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Hmm, and what was he saying? And saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he say in verse 3? For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And what do people do? Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Do you see any correlation, friends, with Moses and when the tabernacle is outside the camp? Here's John the Baptist. He's the messenger of the covenant, he's called, and he's, uh, you know, paving the way for the Lord to come into the world. And he's not central, right? He's not in Jerusalem. He's... He's off wearing weird clothes. He's, he's off in the wilderness and everybody has to go out from where they are. He represents the word and he's peripheral. He, he's off out there. And look at Matthew chapter 11 because the Lord says something that gets to this. Uh, 11, picking up at verse uh, 7 there. He talks about John the Baptist. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now, I love this question. What did you go out in the wilderness? What made you leave town and go? What, 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 what did you go out to see out there? Go on. A reed shaken by the wind? Yes. Oh, look at that fascinating trembling plant matter out there. No. That's not why you left Jerusalem and went out there. But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Was he clothed in soft, like the silk that you would wear in the royal court? No. He's wearing kind of wild man getup, right? And, and he's, he's out there eating locusts and wild honey. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Yeah, that's right. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Yes, John was more than a prophet. So he was a prophet, and what drew them out there, he wasn't a reed shaken by the wind. He wasn't, you know, sort of all elegant and wearing fancy clothes or something. He, he's a prophet out there shouting, repent, you've got to repent. And they all go out there and they confess their sins and they get baptized in the river. And that's a picture of the word. You see, things have gotten pretty far off track again. But here comes the word, and where does it come? Is it central? No, it's, it's off in the Wally Oats. 
but it's attractive and people are going out to see it because like what 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 a great question what did you go out to see why would you go out to see some wild man who's eating strange food out there in the wilderness what did you go out it's because people could tell there was some truth there all these people asked john the baptist what should i do what should we do you know and he said hey don't cheat people and be fair and all that what should we do what should we do they're looking for truth so there's something attractive but it's not central yet Okay, uh, let's go over to Luke, go through Matthew and Mark. Let's get to Luke. Oh, let's go to chapter 2. And now, of course, we get the figure of Jesus. And when Jesus was uh, 12 years old, we read this story. Let's pick up in verse 40 there. 2 verse 40. Yes. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. This is Jesus. Filled with wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. And now they, he went up with his parents to the feast of the Passover. And how old was he in verse 42 then? Twelve years old. He's twelve years old. That's right. And he stays behind and he's asking questions and so on. And they're amazed at his understanding. His parents are distressed. He says, don't you know I must be about my father's business? They don't understand his mother keeps all these sayings in her heart. And in verse 52, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Yeah, so there's this very strong feeling of development. So here, didn't we see Moses? He was just little, he was a little baby. He was hidden away, but then he grew and he became central and he led them out. Now here's Jesus and no, you know, Yes, he was celebrated at his birth and so on, but, but most people didn't know who he was. And there he is in the temple asking questions, and he's growing and getting more powerful, uh, becoming little by little more central. Look at 3.23 about the beginning of, in Luke, about the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It just tells the age that he was. Now, as Jesus began, as Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age. He was about 30 years of age. Wait a minute, he was just 12 in chapter 2. And so Jesus in time becomes central. First of all, he's preaching up in Galilee. Then he moves to Jerusalem, just like David did, right? Becoming central, uh, moving into the center. But he's 30 years old. Moses was 80 when he started leading the children of Israel. Uh, these figures become central, but it takes a while. David becomes central, but it takes a while. Uh, so the, the word does not easily come to the center of our lives. Let's turn to the right to the Gospel of John. Mm. Go to chapter 4, if you will. And Jesus... See, when the northern and the southern kingdom split, as I say, they had different places of worship. And Jesus has this fascinating conversation with the woman by the well. She's a Samaritan. Let's uh, look at verse um, 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Yeah, same language as of uh, John the Baptist. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So here's a center question. Where's our center? 
we worship here, you worship there, you know, she's figured out he's a prophet. What's the deal? Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will n neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Oh, none of the above. Okay, tell me more about them. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But, but the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Mm. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. Next verse. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, this was an interesting passage to me in terms of the center because isn't he saying, she's saying, well, which is the center? Here's where we worship, there's where you worship. And he says, oh, none of the above. This is going to be about spirit and truth. We're, we're moving on to a spiritual center, a spiritual basis. And God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Uh, so I thought that was fun. Um, it's interesting that when Jesus was resurrected, in some of the Gospels, he tells the disciples to go to Galilee. In others, he tells them to stay in Jerusalem. Jesus, at the end of his life in this world, definitely had to go to Jerusalem. That's where everything came down. That's the center. And so he went there, and yet it seemed very strange to his disciples that he died there. They didn't understand that. And um, then you get these um, odd statements. Look at John 21, just these hints about the future. What's going to happen? Mm. 21. At the top. Verse 18, actually, Jesus is speaking to Peter. This is after Jesus was resurrected, and he's talking to Peter, and he says this strange thing. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. We had a Bible study a while ago about the fact that Peter means faith. And this was a prediction that Jesus made about what was going to happen to faith over time. You'll, you'll start out in good shape, but over time you will become, uh, you, you will not go where you want. Faith is going to crumble. It's going to be difficult. And I do need to take you backwards, good friends, to Matthew chapter 24. Because another characteristic that Jesus said while he was in this world of what was going to happen in the future is represented in 24 verse 12 where he's talking about the future. They say, when shall these things be? What about the sign of your coming? Meaning the second coming and the end of the age and all that. And what does he say in 24 12? And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Luckily, that's not going on in our world right now. That's so good that we don't have that situation. But at some future time, it sounds like lawlessness will abound and the love of many will grow cold. So the Lord says faith is going to stumble. Love is going to have a problem. You know, the, this, this thing won't stay on track. Even at the end of the Bible, it's like, okay, the Lord himself, who is the word, came in, the word made flesh, came into the world, taught he was central, but people didn't understand what he was doing. Uh, he was resurrected, and he was still predicting that it was going to get bad again. But in the long, long run, 
turn to Revelation at the back of the Bible. See, we're going to land it on time. <laughs> Revelation chapter 21, with a lot of cheating and skipping and so on. Uh, look at 21 verse 1 there. 21 verse mm. 1. Now I saw a new heaven and, and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth mm. had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what do we read in verse 3? And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle the of God, the tabernacle. Oh, the tabernacle. Of God is with men. I thought we were done with the tabernacle along. Didn't we get rid of the tabernacle? Then we had a temple and then that was destroyed. We got another temple that was destroyed. Oh, there's going to be a tabernacle? That's great. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Okay, and it talks about the tabernacle there. It talks about the temple later in this. And uh, so there's amazing predictions of, of how beautiful this will be. Uh, you don't need to come with me, but I just want to read you something from Matthew 21. Very familiar to many of you, I'm sure. Uh, verse 42 Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures that the stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Isn't that what we're talking about all night here? How does that thing that was rejected become central? How does that thing move in and take over in your life? Um, and... I want to take you to uh, the middle of your Bible, Psalm 90. We've just got two more scriptures, dear and patient friends. Uh, Psalm 90. There's a phrase that just right before Bible study came to mind, and I think this really sums up what we've been reading about tonight, if I've been communicating at all effectively. Psalm 90. I just want to read those first three verses. It's just one of my favorite Psalms. Oops, 89 is long. Okay. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Mm. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So God is central, but look at verse 3. And, sorry, you turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. Isn't that what we're talking about? Like, whoops. And we know that that's just an appearance that God would turn us to destruction. He doesn't want us to go through destruction. But as we turn away, uh, we sow our own destruction and we turn to destruction. And then he says, come on back. Whoopsie, we wandered off again. Okay, come on back, everybody. Let's make this central again. Oh, oh, we fell off the other way. Okay, let's try to get this back. Get it, get it in the center there. Get the Word and the Lord to be central. And finally... We have that beautiful image at the end of Revelation of the tabernacle and the temple of God. But look at Isaiah. Turn to the right to Isaiah chapter 33, a prophecy that's so beautiful and powerful to me. Uh, 33, verse 20. And see how this bears on what we've been talking about tonight. Look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Zion has to do with Jerusalem. Go on. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, a quiet home, a tabernacle that will not be taken down. What? 
a tabernacle that won't be taken down? A tabernacle that won't be taken down? All the other tabernacles were taken down. All the other temples were destroyed. You're talking about a tabernacle that won't be taken down? Tell me more about that. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed. Not one of its stakes ever removed. Nor will any of its cords be broken. Nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the majestic Lord will be for us, a place of broad rivers and streams, in which no galley with oars will sail, nor majestic ships pass by. Go on. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's right. Thank you, friend. So that image of the tabernacle that would never, this is a forecast into the distant future. How do I read this? How I read this is that um, the, the Lord starts out in our life central, but we pretty quickly get over that. In some ways, it sort of happens when you hit teething or something, you know, uh, we, we, we start to change a little bit and it's not quite as central as it used to be, but you still have lots of sort of spiritual experiences when you're in your childhood. And, uh, and then over time, we learn things. And so we try to, we get out of each, okay, we learn things. We got all tangled up in that, but we need to make the Lord central. So we work hard. Moses comes in and eventually it takes a long time. But we get that central, whoops, and then we fall off. And then we get it back and whoops, we fall off and we get it back. But the prediction is that John the Baptist comes. He's peripheral to begin with. He becomes central. The Lord comes into the picture. He's peripheral. He becomes central. He predicts that there'll be a time when faith runs out and love grows cold. But after that, the tabernacle will be set up and it will never be torn down. The Lord will be present with us. God himself will be with us. And, and be our God, and we shall be his people, it says. So, uh, how do we make the word central? Here are some wild guesses off the top of my head. Uh, it would be good to kind of get in the habit of reading, right? And it can be surprisingly difficult to, to get in that habit and maintain that habit. I don't think that does it by itself, but it sort of gets something going. Following the instructions on the box is always advised as well. Uh, it says repent. We've noticed a number of times when things got off track, they needed to lay aside the gods, put them away. They had to, you know, stop what they were, you know, stop the wrong things that they were doing. Follow the book of the law. That's how to keep it at the center. And I would say, friends, and maybe we'll talk about this more another time, just to invite the Lord not only just into sort of the periphery of your life, can you relate to it where you, you sort of, you see Moses go over there and commune with the Lord, but he's somewhere else, you know, and then you get to the point where, no, that's at the center and we're all camped around it and that's what's guiding us and inviting the Lord even into the dark places of our lives to say, okay, Lord, I'm willing for you. Swedenborg says that it's, it's a complete and total submission that the Lord desires and not that we be partly our own and partly the Lord's giving all of ourselves to the Lord. What did it say? Josiah followed the Lord with all his whole heart, with his whole mind, uh, following, uh, you know, uh, the Lord as much as possible. And so we need to keep trying to move the Lord back into the center, doing that repentance and so on. And there's a beautiful picture to me in all these stories that on the one hand, what they say to me is that, you know, 
it's just realistic that there will be times when, this, when, when, when we slide. I mean, the book has so many slidings, you know? It just seems like it's saying, hey, you will try to make this cent central, then sort of life will happen, and I'll get pushed off to the side again, and then you need to try to establish that again, get back on, on the horse, get that in the middle and everything. I love the fact that the book of the law comes back in. You have to inquire the Lord about it and, and hook up with the Lord through it. But at the end of the story, there's the possibility that this tabernacle will be set up and it will be never torn down. Not one of its stakes will ever be removed or any of its cords will be broken. What a beautiful picture of getting eventually to the point where the, the Lord's work was successful and he has occupied his, his throne, his central place in our lives. This commanding, he takes over Jerusalem, kicks the enemies out, unites the north and south, our mind and our heart, brings them all together. The, Lord, the Lord's living in, in there at the center. And by that point, that eventual point, in other words, for us, a lot of us, I think that's when we pass on to the other world, as long as we've done our work here, you know, done that repentance and tried to get that back and get that back. Uh, then the Lord can be central and remain central forever, which is something devoutly to be wished. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we thank you for the immensity of that mercy that keeps hovering over us, keeps working with us, keeps trying to bring us back. You wake us up, we go to sleep, you wake us up again, Lord. Please help us to bring you into the center of our lives. Help us to do as if of ourselves those things that are needed to show you that we really want you in the center of our lives. We want that pillar of love and that, that pillar of truth to lead us by day and by night and bring us forward. And thank you, Lord, for that vision of the tabernacle that is never torn down. Please bring us even to that place. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting for the usual reasons. Thank you, friends. <laughs>